welcome to the Glow Journal Podcast, a conversation with the beautiful minds behind the world's biggest beauty brands. I'm your host, beauty writer Gemma Watts, and in this episode, I'm joined by the Global Artistic Director of Makeup for Shiseido, James Bomer. Shiseido are undisputedly one of the largest and most influential heritage brands of all time. Founded in Japan in 1872, Shiseido has cultivated a reputation for innovation in beauty, celebrating the synergy between art and science. It was that very reputation that drew now global artistic director James Bomer to the brand. Having studied fine art and costume design prior to becoming a makeup artist, James has long worked best within that very intersection of art and science. Having spent close to 20 years at NARS under the close mentorship of Francois NARS himself, the bulk of which he spent as the brand's global artistic director, James's personal approach to beauty encompasses the arts of performance, collaboration and construction. In 2016, James became the global artistic director for Shiseido Makeup, tasked with visiting the archives to redevelop and in turn relaunch the then 144-year-old brand's entire colour cosmetics collection. James's role sees him direct Shiseido's innovation across colour and texture to tell the brand's story, one that celebrates the marriage of form and function in all parts of Japanese culture. More recently, Shiseido have announced the appointment of Hunter Schaefer as the brand's global makeup ambassador, cementing their status as pioneers of not only product, but of progression and inclusivity in beauty. Beauty should be democratic and it should be for everyone, James tells me in this episode. In this conversation, James shares how far you can get with warm, gracious energy, the global appeal of the J-beauty movement, and how his background as a quote-unquote frustrated dancer has shaped his work for some of the world's biggest beauty brands. You grew up in St. Louis and started, studied sorry, fine art and costume design in Chicago, but I want to go all the way back to the very beginning. What is your very earliest memory of beauty? I think it's funny, I get asked this question a lot and I probably am never that consistent in my answer. But I think, you know, I, I was a kid in the, in the mid seventies and there was that explosion, that, that sort of moment in pop culture um, with, you know, Charlie's Angels and Olivia Newton-John and Farrah Fawcett and, you know, like $6 million man and the bionic woman and Love Boat and sort of the, the beginning of disco music and, the sort of glamour of um, pop culture at large. I mean, I remember when my mom's magazines would come in, whether they were like the TV guide or good housekeeping, or, you know, she didn't really subscribe to a lot of um, high fashion magazines, but I was always hungry for any of those um, magazines and publications that sort of gave uh, a glimpse to the outside world and, and, and sort of turned me onto places outside of where I grew up. And I think, you know, from, from, a, from a specific beauty um, thought, I guess, or, or the, the first time I thought about it was probably with my own mom and her like skincare routine. And you know, she wasn't really a makeup wearer, but she really took care of her skin. And, you know, she would sometimes wear lipstick if she was going out. Um, 
but I think sort of that regimen and then also mixed with just like the, the visuals and the images that were on record covers and, you know, on, on, on the radio. Um, I remember Donna Summer was one of my like first records that I ever had. So I always think about that like glossy skin, glossy lips, like a uh, little bit of color, but still sort of natural makeup. Um, that moment in the mid to late 70s is probably one that always resonates with God, that matte era that we had only a few years ago must have absolutely destroyed you then. <laughs> well, I think, I mean, I always like, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm somebody who's a big fan of skin and the texture of skin. Mm-hmm. And that's been something that I've always, I think, has been consistent in my own work as a makeup artist. And I think definitely um, with sort of working with with a brand like Shiseido, that's, that's such a... Um, hallmark of skincare and, 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 you know, the heritage of the brand and, and sort of the innovations of the brand in skincare. It's always so interesting to me, but I think whether or not you have, you know, matte skin, glossy skin, transparent skin, full coverage skin, I, as long as it looks like skin, I'm down for it. I love it. So those are your earliest memories of beauty. What did you think that you might be when you grew up? Initially, the first thing that I wanted to be when I grew up, I'm a frustrated dancer. Um, I was- I, So am I. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh my God, that's amazing. Yeah, I, um, I, I really wanted to, well, there was this show on um, in the States in the late 70s called Sol, um, Solid Gold. I don't know if you've ever seen- I haven't. A clip of it, but it was basically, um, it, it was hosted by different people. And Dionne Warwick was a host at one at what time. Um, Marilyn, Mancou, Marilyn McCoo from The Fifth Dimension was a host. So it would basically be like the top 10 songs, um, you know, on Billboard um, at the time. And then they would have this troupe of dancers that would like dance little clips to the the popular songs of the day. So this is my dream. My first real thing that I wanted to be was a solid gold dancer. And I that was my dream. And then I sort of pursued the fringes of dance, um, you know, being involved in theater as a kid. And and I never trained properly, um, which I which I regret. I didn't start training as a dancer until I was about 15. And by then I was a stupid teenager that wasn't disciplined and like wanted to have fun and, you know, wanted to drink and, you know, do all of that stupid stuff that teenagers do. I didn't want to go to dance class. Um, but that was really my first, that was my first love. And, and it's interesting because any opportunity in my career that I've been able to be adjacent or close to dance, I have, um, including our um, film that we made for when we launched our complexion products. Um, it, the whole thing was inspired by dance and uh, we were able to work with the amazing choreographer, Ryan Heffington, who's, mm-hmm. who's in California. Um, so that was a dream to sort of put my love of, you know, skin and complexion and, um, and dance together was incredible. We had very um, similar early ambitions. I, <laughs> my goal for this year was to go back to dance classes and then obviously every studio has shut so I've been doing them over Zoom as we do everything now. So I was going to say, have you taken part in any of the sort of virtual dance classes? I have been doing three classes a week. It's the best feeling. You just can't yeah. be in a bad mood after a dance class. It's really true. There's um, Ryan has, um, you know, unfortunately he had to close the studio because of because of everything that's happening. Um, he had a, a studio in LA, but he's been doing um, virtual classes on Instagram, and um, his his uh, um, platform is called the Sweat Spot. So anybody Amazing. who wants some good dance, he's incredible. Um, I have I have lots of friends that are dancers too. So you know, uh, I try to I try to take part in that as much as possible, even if it's not like a lead class. I'll sometimes just 
give myself an hour or two a day to just like dance around my apartment and get it out. It's, it's, it's really a great release and it, it sort of clears your mind. Yeah, completely agree. That's my therapy now. I read that your very first introduction to makeup artistry, if you will, was when you were working on a feature film across wardrobe, hair and makeup while you were still studying. I would love to hear more about that experience. Had you ever worked as a makeup artist before? Not professionally. So it was sort of like a fluke thing. I was I was in school at Columbia College in Chicago and I had met a a, a friend who at the time her boyfriend had just written a screenplay and he you know managed to like raise a little bit of money to like shoot a film uh, very small budget and I had sort of you know I'd always been adjacent to makeup like I would do makeup for my friends I would wear makeup you know when we would go out and sort of club it was very much that like 90s grunge club kid sort of moment where like all of our eyebrows were shaved off and you know, we were living this sort of like alien and androgynous freak out world. Um, so I was, you know, I would mess around with makeup, but I didn't really do it. Um, I hadn't really, you know, ever been hired as a makeup artist. And my friend Trish was just like, hey, you know, would you be interested in doing this? I know you're sort of, I know you probably can. Um, so I just sort of got roped into it. And, and then the producer that was working on it actually um, liked me and, you know, I guess I, I guess I had good energy or I was like, you know, an eager young thing. And, and he started booking me for the commercial and television and film work from there. So I, I sort of entered in really quickly, almost before I ever thought about it, it was, it was sort of, um, not really something that I'd planned on. And then when I made the decision, cause I started working quite a bit and I'd made the decision to quit college, I had to sort of tell my dad why I was quitting college and what I was going to do. And I just sort of said, I'm going to be a makeup artist. And I don't 100% know what that's going to look like or how I'm going to do it, but that's what I'm going to do. So I just sort of went after it. And and here we are. So to drop out of college to focus on makeup is a pretty big thing. A broad question, but what was it about makeup that you loved so much that you felt comfortable taking that leap? I think, I, you know, part of what I've always loved about beauty and fashion and um, just, I guess, the art of transformation and the performance of, um, you know, the performance of dance, the performance of, um, you know, theater. Uh, I, I, it was hard for me to identify what it was that I specifically liked. And I, and I don't think I was able to verbalize makeup specifically as the answer. But I think as I learned stepping stepping into that world and collaborating with people on set and like being part of the team that creates the images or transforms the talent or you know creates a, a dialogue for the performers to me that seemed really interesting as part of um, the collaboration and part of the construction of that sort of other world um, so I guess when I when I discovered that I could do it and that I had a knack for it, and of course I just like tried to learn as much as I could, and I started assisting other makeup artists at the time as well. Um, it wasn't like I was just like you know fabulous and incredible. You know, five minutes later, um, you know, it, assisting is so important. But I, you know, I think when I was able to verbalize okay makeup and was able to ze like zero in on it, it was actually quite helpful because it gave me a lot more focus. You know, before that I was like you know, I'm going to be a fine artist or I'm going to be a dancer or I'm going to be an actor or I'm going to be a costume designer. Like I was sort of floating around in all of these worlds that I hadn't clearly identified. So 
something about makeup um, helps helps me have focus, and I think gave me a goal and an objective, which was helpful. And and of course, you know, I felt like I had to be proactively pursuing something if I was going to be not in school. And you know, I I I didn't have the I didn't have the luxury to like just you know sort of screw off. You know what I mean? I I, I had to work. I had to make a living. I, my dad was certainly not like, you know, going to be supporting me if I wasn't in school. So, you know, it was part of it was the reality of like growing up really quick and like, you know, putting your foot to the gas a little bit. Mm. What were some of the highlights from that early period of learning the ropes as a makeup artist? And were there any, I guess, lessons from that time that you find you're still applying to your work today? I think the first first thing that you learn when you enter that world is just how to behave on set and like, you know, the professionalism of being part of a team and being respectful of the people that you work with and, you know, making sure that you're allowing everybody's part to be, you know, part of the equation and to be part of the whole. Um, I think learning that sort of um, respect to the people that you work with, especially when it comes to the people that sit in your chair um, you know, if it's an actor, if it's a model, if it's a dancer, it's a performer, it's really important that you're gracious with your energy and your collaboration and your spirit because, you know, you, as a makeup artist, you're one of the most um, intimate people that, that, you know, a performer will work with. So your energy really rubs off. So I think that's one of my earliest lessons. And then, you know, just like, working with different makeup artists in different fields like film, like fashion, um, you know, working with photographers, learning about light. I mean, you, it's, it, it really was an education. I think that was, you know, I, I, I felt like I was able to gain incredibly valuable experience in real life practical, you know, on the job learning versus sort of like, um, you know, the, the philosophy of what you do when, when you're in school. So, I, you know, the, my, my early work, I think, was an education. And I mean, even, you know, I mean, I look back at some of the stuff from that era and I'm like, Oh my God, like, what was I thinking? Um, so, you know, it's a, but it's all a learning. I mean, it's part of, you know, it's part of your path and part of your journey. Naturally, everyone's story is going to be a little bit different, but what advice would you give to anyone who is hoping to become a makeup artist? I think you, first and foremost, I think you have to be patient. Um, I think that, you know, I think especially nowadays with, um, you know, sort of like the influx of, of social media and our connectivity to everybody that I think people see these sort of overnight successes. And I think that you can definitely amass a following on social media. And, and if that's something that you want to go after, which I think is it's, a, it's an incredibly valid part of the industry now, that's something to think about how you build. That's, that's very different than how I built, built my career, which was really about um, assisting, about learning, about making connections, about establishing um, relationships with people, um, you know, building a point of view. Uh, part of it is like putting in your time in a weird way. And, mm -hmm. and I think, um, you know, the best advice I think is, is that if it's something that you want to do, like stick to it and put, you know, 150% into it, because that's what it's going to take to, you know, achieve any sort of success, whatever that success you know, means to you. If that's, 
having a million followers on Instagram and having like a following, if that's like working in product development, if it's being a special effects makeup artist, if it's grooming people for the red carpet, there's so many incredible facets of the makeup business. And I think that the best advice is to try out as many of those facets as possible, figure out where you fit and, and what feels right, and then zero in and, 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 and build from there. But there's just so many things you know, in the world of makeup and beauty that I didn't even think about um, or would have had no, no understanding of that part of the industry or the business. So there's, there's a lot to explore. I think that is such good advice because, as you've just said, with social media, I feel like people have this very clear idea of what a makeup artist is, but there's so much that goes on behind that. Yeah, and I, and I think a makeup, you know, it's like it's it's subjective, right? Like there's mm. no, I think, you know, I, I, I feel like I struggled for years about like the word makeup artist, you know, the title artist, because I felt like so much of what I had studied you know, in regards to fine art was was really a different thing. And and so much about working in makeup is work. It's 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 commerce, it's um entertainment, it's there, there it is work. Now that doesn't mean you don't have a, an opportunity to be artistic, but I think that yeah, just really understanding like the options that are available to you if this is something that you want to do. Um, and, you know, it's hard because you have mentors. I'm really lucky that I had incredible mentors along the way and incredible teachers that really helped me shape my path. And I think that's something that's really important. Like, ask questions, be open, um, you know, be professional, number one, and then also be flexible because you may end up loving something that you never thought you would, you would ever fall into. I mean, I wouldn't be here right now if I, you know, wasn't just a little bit open to, you know, trying something that I hadn't you know, really planned on. Mm. Prior to your current role as Shiseido Makeup Global Artistic Director, God, say that three times fast, you served as Director of Global Artistry for NARS and held the role of key artist backstage for so many designers at Fashion Week, Vivian Westwood, Carolina Herrera. The resume is unbelievable. I do have a couple of questions about that time. The first being on the process of physically developing a runway look. I imagine that it does have to be quite collaborative with a designer, but can you talk me through that process and how you go about creating the look that then gets sent down the runway? I, I, you know, I love, I loved my time working, um, you know, at fashion week and with designers and, and, and creating looks for the runway. It's such a, such a moment and i i was such a fan personally of that moment at the late 80s early 90s with the supermodel and that sort of like explosion of of glamour and um you know the the, the models became larger than life and and it was such an incredible opportunity i first and foremost to be able to work with francois nars who you know created so many of those iconic moments that i you know was so enamored by so working with him and working for the brand as i as i did for so long was such a to me, really, that's like my master, my 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 master, my master, my master class, my uh, my master's degree, my doctorate, whatever. <laughs> uh, it was that was to me where the real education started because I was so enamored by by Francois and his work and his point of view and his sense of humor and his taste level and his just just in, in, in incredible um, generous person and generous artist that he is. So when I was able to start doing and creating makeup looks on my own it was 
it was like a dream come true. And, and I think as far as the process goes, it is true collaboration. You know, the designer, you know, especially I think at that moment, maybe it's not the same now. I think that, you know, fashion weeks around the world are so, so different now anyways. But I think at the time it was really about a story. It was really about a moment. It was really about like, you know, the collection was inspired by, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, and, and the makeup look is, is sort of a continuation of the story. So I think it was fun to inject the character so that the girls had, you know, inhabited this persona as they, as they spent that, you know, seven to 10 minutes on the runway. Um, but so, but, but it's very collaborative. It was really fun. It felt really creative. I felt like, um, personally, I always wanted to do something that I hadn't seen before. And again, it was a good opportunity for me. Um, that moment in my career was really helpful to shape my own personal aesthetic and my own point of view. And I think that that's, that was sort of that moment where um, I felt much more confident in my own voice about, you know, what I like and what I don't like and what I think, uh, you know, when it comes to makeup. So that was, yeah, I mean, it, such an incredible moment. And, you know, from literally from like the first fashion show I did with Francois and the NARS team, you know, onto doing my own shows, um, you know, throughout my time with the brand, it was just like a blast and, and the best. God, what I wouldn't give to just be able to go to a fashion show now. I'm hankering for events to exist once more. <laughs> so true. <laughs> Another question that I have on that period, the runway is where we beauty consumers and I guess fashion consumers are looking for the trends for the upcoming season. However, what works for a runway and, of course, for an editorial is often not hugely applicable to you know, the day-to-day, how would you recommend that beauty consumers adapt a runway look or an editorial trend to suit day-to-day? Imagine we're not in lockdown. Yeah. Well, I think it's, it's interesting because I think definitely, um, I mean, most of the shows that I did when I was, when I was working um, backstage were in New York. Uh, I, I had experience in other, in other cities one thing about New York um, was that, I mean, I think if you compared it to London um, or Paris or Milan, um, you know, even Tokyo Fashion Week, it, you know, New York always had a tendency to be much more clean, mm-hmm. um, much more about skin, not so m- m- obvious makeup looks. So the beauty was always in the detail, like a more defined eyebrow or too much mascara. It was always like one little thing. Um, and I think that's sort of good advice and that's sort of what I guess, shapes these, these trends, you know, maybe now they don't come so much from the runway or from like magazine editorial, they maybe start on Instagram or they start, um, you know, they, they start on in, in a, in a smaller, maybe not in a smaller way, they start in a more organic, more direct way, you know? Um, but I think the advice that I would have is just like, if something seems attractive or something seems interesting, you sort of have like a gut instinctual reaction to something that you want to try you should just try it because it's makeup and it washes off and it's not, you know, you're not stuck with it. So, you know, if you like worst case scenario is you like do your eyebrows too dark, which by the way, I do all the time because my eyebrows are gray. They're not on right now because I wasn't recording. The Um, shape of them is so good. (laughs) Um, But I would say, you know, take, take the opportunity to like adapt what you see. So if it's like a really strong, colorful eye, try an eyeliner that's colorful, you know, drop your black or your brown that you use every day and just alternate that one piece. Or if you like typically don't do 
a matte lipstick and you do more of a transparent gloss, try a matte lipstick. So I think sometimes like the texture and the just sort of breaking your habits a little bit of what you always do is good advice. You know, you see blue on the runway or you see blue on Instagram and you're attracted to it, try it, you know, but maybe do it in a smaller way. Um, and then you sort of build your confidence and you get comfortable and then you're not so, um, I guess you're not so victimized by the trend, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And you feel a little bit more like yourself. Now's the time to do it. It's not like you're going to go into the office and Debbie from accounts is going to be like, oh, what have you done? It's 100% true. Like, I mean, that's the thing. I you, We were having these conversations a lot in the beginning of lockdown, especially it was like, you know, it's a time for experimentation. Um, and, it's a, and also, you know, you're, you're sort of performing when you're on a Zoom call. So if you don't feel, at least for me, if I don't feel dressed or totally finished, I feel like I can't perform. So you know, throwing on a lipstick that you've never worn or like wearing too much mascara or like, you know, trying like a glittery highlighter on your cheek, you know, it's, you're not going to hurt anybody, especially if you're just in front of your Zoom camera. And you might fall in love with something that you never, you know, you never would have been willing to try. I love that. You're not going to hurt anybody. You worked for NAS for something to the tune of 14 years. You've touched on how working with Francois was your you know, masterclass. How did his approach to beauty shape your own work? I think his, I mean, and 14 might be, I, I'm, I, it might even be longer than that. I think it's, it might even be closer to like 18 or 20 Amazing. In, like, in all capacities, um, which is also insane to think about. Like, I, I think it's weird to like think about doing something for more than 20 years in general is insane. Um, I think the thing that I love about Francois and what I learned from him more than anything is like the detail of everything and like the gesture behind everything and like the permission that he always gave himself to be spontaneous and to not be like scripted. So, you know, you always have these preconceived notions when you go on set and you're, you know, whether you're shooting an ad campaign or you're shooting, um, you know, an image for a book or you're doing a tutorial or you're working with a celebrity for red carpet you have all of these preconceived notions that you sort of bring with you. And like one of the things that I felt he always did that was so magical was like to be so present and in the moment and be spontaneous. And like, you know, you would have a plan to do this very like 1960 Sophia Loren sort of like cat eye. And then, you know, at the, at the, you know, blink of an eye, it would, it would be a different reference. Um, so I think that like, permission to like be experimental and spontaneous is something that I really learned from him. And also like the encyclopedia of references that he was. And, and I feel like I also am. And that's like something that makeup artists should always um, brush up on, like know your references, because if you're working with a creative director or an artistic director or a stylist or a photographer who wants to channel a certain moment and you don't know what they mean, um, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be hard for you to do your job. So, um, I feel like that was one of my favorite things about working with Francois was like speaking in the jargon of reference and speaking almost in this, like, you know, the, like, um, the expression of like, you know, early gay slang in London in like the fifties and sixties was called Polare. And so there's almost like this little secret language that you can, you sort of learn, um, talking to somebody about, you know, a reference to a classic film or to a piece of literature. And um, to me, that is like, I think I noticed that about his work before I started working with him. And then to see how he infused that 
point of view and that narrative into everything that he did for the brand and for his work um, was so inspiring. And I definitely took that concept and that ethos and put it into the work that I've done with Shiseido. Amazing. In 2016, if research serves, you did take on the role of Global Artistic Director of Makeup for Shiseido. What was it specifically about Shiseido's approach to beauty that you felt aligned with your own beauty ethos? Well, I think, you know, first, and, and I don't know that everyone knows this, maybe a lot of um, listeners don't know this, NARS is part of the Shiseido mm. group. So, um, you know, I had had a lot of experience in my career um, at NARS and my time at NARS um, dealing with you, you, the team that, that global headquarters in Tokyo. Mm. And personally, as a you know, skincare aficionado, as a teenager, like Shiseido was one of my first sort of like prestige products that I ever used and still use. Um, I've been loyal to Shiseido skincare for uh, probably since I was like 16. Um, and I then, as I learned more about the organization and the, and the company's history and especially seeing what Shiseido is in Tokyo and in Japan, which is so different from how it has been perceived in other parts of the world, I think before what we did with the relaunch of makeup, um, was just so beautiful and so special and such an interesting point of view about celebrating the beauty um, in it's sort of inside and out and like the beauty of ritual and the beauty of form and the beauty of function. And you know, they have this very artistic um, approach to science. And there's this always this sort of synergy between art and science that they've, um, that they've sort of um, celebrated over their 150 years. And I think when the opportunity came up, I mean, I was, it was, it was number one, like an honor. And number two, I was like, Oh my God, like, how and like who is gonna like you know wake me up to tell me that this is like not really happening because it was really a dream come true i feel like i um you know i've spent a lot of time in my career in japan um i developed relationships with people on the shiseido team i think that's part of it and i also think um i've always really loved japanese culture i like japanese aesthetics i i i sort of believe in a lot of the um, ideologies and sort of thoughts that are so inherent to that culture. So um, I also felt like I had an innate understanding to translate. Um, and again, I think the goal really was to try to bring all of this like beauty of Japan and Japanese culture and um, this idea of art and science, like, you know, and, and sort of make some more noise about it. Um, I don't know if I answered your question, but. <laughs> <laughs> you did. You absolutely did. Sorry, I've just completely cut you off. I wanted to um, ask about the relaunch of Shiseido's color offering because I feel like that ties into what you've just said. That was in around 2018. Two questions. Why yeah. a relaunch? And secondly, what is distinctly different about the current Shiseido makeup collection as compared to what existed prior to that 2018 relaunch? Yeah. Well, I think the interesting thing about like the, I guess our objective and our goal really when we came in, um, you know, in 2016, the team that sort of came in and started thinking about, uh, you know, what we wanted to do or what our, what our goal was with Shiseido. I think number one, it was really making the brand um, more global um, it's, you know, Shiseido has been a global brand since the late 70s. They, they were a domestic brand, um, you know, only available in, 
in, in Tokyo and some parts of Asia prior to the late 70s. But they, um, all of their production and all of their sort of referencing and point of view had always been from Japan. And, you know, even though the brand has worked with, you know, honestly, some of the most amazing artists in, in, the, in the business, starting with Serge Luton's and, you know, Tom Pichot and Kevin Aquan and Dick Page. So they always had such a, the artistry and the point of view, I think, was always very special and very unique and very Japanese and, and very elevated and very inspiring. Um, what we knew we had an opportunity with was product specifically to um, offer more extended shade ranges so that it would service more clients globally. Um, and then also from a performance point of view, we really wanted, we felt like when we came on board, you know, we were, we were, we were seeing such high performance in skincare and in sun care. And we weren't, we didn't feel like we had the same performance in the makeup. It wasn't like, it wasn't those, those ideas weren't adapted to the makeup. So that was really the objective was to increase the performance. Uh, I think translate this Japanese point of view and aesthetic in a more global way. And then also our challenge for ourselves was really to create products that we hadn't felt before that were very unique, surprising, um, innovative, and then also were easy to use. Um, that were also products that were not geared for makeup artists, that were not intimidating. Although I think we managed to, to have some very expressive colors and, 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 and some really cool products and innovative formulas, but, but not to be intimidating to the consumer because I think um, you know, it's, we, we weren't trying to turn this into a makeup artist brand. It's, it's still, it's still a heritage brand. It's still, um, is very much consumer facing and, and we want it to be relevant to, to consumers. Um, I think we also wanted to speak to a younger consumer than, than who we were currently speaking to. So that was definitely something that was very conscious when we started working on the colors that we, we felt that, you know, there's sort of like, there's many different makeup wearers, but but the, but, the, but the person who really likes makeup is really expressive with makeup and wants to have an expressive point of view. So we wanted more options in the, in the range that would, would sort of service that, that point of view in that person. This is something that you have sort of just touched on, but I think it's worth delving into a little deeper. One of the many things that I find really interesting about Shiseido is that I feel like so many color cosmetics brands will delve into skincare, whereas Shiseido, despite obviously doing both, has long been viewed as a skincare brand that also offers color cosmetics. And you've just touched on the performance being a really big factor there. Do you have a take on that? How have you found the process of developing makeup for what did really begin as a skincare brand back in 1897? Yeah, I think it's, you know, I think it's what we really looked at and, and what I spent a lot of time on prior to, you know, actually getting into the kitchen or getting into the lab was was doing my research and really, um, you know, meeting with our, um, our our corporate culture department that sort of is, an, is responsible for like our archive. So the creative archive was one thing, but also, you know, the, the sort of like archive and history of like innovations and innovation and formula throughout throughout the brand's history. And again, I think especially because so much innovation happened, especially in, you know, the, the last century, really, if you think about like how much innovation in, in all industry, um, you know, there were so many firsts that I was discovering that I felt like, wow, this is crazy that like, I don't know this, like, 
if I don't know this about Shiseido, like I bet no one else knows this about Shiseido. So like maybe my non-Japanese-ness, which is a little louder, right? And a little bit more like, you know, outrageous, I guess, like wants to be more vocal about some of these things that the brand had done. So those were things that we really wove into the product development and the stories. So like innovations in powder textures, for instance, um, you know, Shiseido was one of the first makeup brands in the 60s that offered like a wet dry foundation that would make, you know, wearing makeup, which at the time was very oily and very heavy and quite thick, would make it more comfortable for summer months and make it actually more comfortable. The product was called Beauty Cake. And the, 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 the campaign for the product was actually really innovative. It was uh, uh, styled by, uh, like the creative director was a woman, which was very unusual at the time for Japanese companies to have a woman working for them. And the model uh, was, was very tan, which actually at the time in you know, Japanese culture in the mm. 60s was not the popular look. So it was like, I was like, that's really pretty badass. And that's pretty, um, that's really pushing the boundaries. So I think that I really took that, the idea of all of that um, pioneerism or like the firsts and the spirit of doing something different and put it into the brand. Um, I do think that, you know, the cost of entry with makeup is so different now than it used to be too. Mm. Like, you know, you, when you put something on, you want it to be on until you take it off. So if the eyeliner, you know, the eyeliner doesn't really need to last 24 hours, but it needs to stay on. It needs to not smudge. It needs to do what it needs to do. Um, you should be able to use it. Um, so I think all of those things, like, you know, we felt like we had a lot of opportunity to improve the performance. Also, I mean, the other thing was, is that the makeup was like, it wasn't like it was bad makeup that we had to like really like, you know, throw away and like completely start over. A lot of it was like building on what was already there um, and continuing sort of the innovations that had started before us. So some things, I mean, we did sort of relaunch everything. Um, some things were sort of um, gener like next generations of products that were there before, or maybe they were spun in a different way with a different packaging play or a different applicator or whatever. Um, but, but we, you know, we felt like we had an opportunity to, 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 I guess, up the game a little bit. On product development, a large part of your role does see you leading color innovation and directing the shade development, much like fashion Color cosmetics are developed before the trend hits. So how do you do it? How do you forecast these trends and tap in to what we will all be wanting to wear so far in advance? I honestly, part of it is that I, I, you know, we're, we're aware of everything. I think, you know, the industry all sort of has, most of us in the industry has the same resources, right? So we're all looking at the same, um, you know, trend forecasting, mm you know, decks and whatever. So I think that part of, I mean, from, from product innovation, I think definitely for us, because we have, uh, you know, an amazing uh, internal research and development department, we have, we have one lab that we work very closely with, which is in New Jersey and the US. And then obviously we have one in Tokyo. Um, a lot of our innovation and formulation comes internally, which is not, you know, the chemists that come up with these like textures and formulas aren't really looking at what's happening in the, you know, in the, in the big scheme of the industry. Of course. That's what our marketing teams are after. So marketing will then say, okay, we think that we, we have the, this really cool nugget of an idea or this ingredient or this formula or this application. And we think it would be cool in a face innovation. 
And then I sort of come in and think about like, okay, well, what is the, what's the shade? What's the story? Um, and, and obviously work with our product development teams on the formula packaging, all of that. Um, but for the shades themselves, I mean, part of it is intuition and part of it is my own personal point of view and not trying to be too focused on like, what's going to be, you know, the big, the big color or the big hit. Mm. Um, I think especially because like, you know, seasonal makeup launches like that just don't seem modern anymore. And I think, you know, typically what happens is you will launch a range of something. So maybe it's, it's a new product in 10 shades or it's a lipstick with 24. Um, obviously complexion products, you want to have like a, like a, like a larger shade range so that it services more people. It's, it's more inclusive for, for, for everyone. But when it comes to color, it's like part of it is just, I guess your personal point of view. And, and I look at all things to develop that. Like I look at painting, I look at art, I look at movies, I, I look at things around me and my, in my house and my interior design, I look at fashion um, and all of that goes into it as well. And then I guess the third piece is I'm also always trying to tell a story with the products that we create and have some sort of emotional connection. So what I do with the shade names is really about sort of uh, revealing or celebrating a different part of Japanese culture or like my own observation on Japanese culture or like my own visit to Japan. So, you know, to me, that's like the special part of like marrying the shade name and the product payoff and the color to, to, to be more than just, you know, a lipstick. Um, so, so, so hopefully like the experience of using it becomes a little more memorable and maybe a little more connected. Um, again, did I answer your question? I think you I, did I, indeed. Not everything. <laughs> no, I love it. This is, oh, I, this, I could be here for four and a half hours. I love this so much. Shiseido is obviously a Japanese brand and something that the rest of the world are hearing more and more about is J-Beauty as a, as a trend, as a movement. Talk to me about J-Beauty. Why do you think it has become a global movement, particularly sort of in recent years? I think, I think we, we thought a lot about this as we were developing the brand because I think, you know, I think so much about um, Japanese innovation and, and um, sort of like this idea of, you know, the perfect marriage of form and function in, in, in all parts of Japanese culture. So, you know, in the way that you buy, uh, you know, a, a, a toilet plunger, I'm making that up, or like a scrub brush or, um, you know, a, a, a beautiful humidifier. All of these very functional things are still really beautiful. Um, there and there, so there is this idea of like the elevation of design in in all things um, Japanese. I think that is prevalent in fashion. I think that's prevalent in design. I think that's definitely prevalent in like cosmetics and personal care items. So this idea of Japanese beauty, what I think it's really about, it, it is about that marriage of form and function. Um, it's about the intuition of using something and sort of knowing how to use it. And I also think that, you know, with, with anything that's made in Japan or anything that's from Japan, I think especially, um, in my opinion, is, is, is really a mark of quality. And I think that that is what you get when you think about like Japanese beauty. Uh, Shiseido, especially as a brand that has such a history and has such high standards of, you know, efficacy testing and safety testing and all of that, like we don't launch something um, if it doesn't do what it says and it doesn't work and it's not safe because we can't. 
Um, so I do think that there's this, this element of, of quality. And I also think that just, this was sort of like the moment of the, in the, you know, mid nineties with the sort of Belgian influence in fashion and like the Japanese influence in fashion. I think the prior era of fashion was quite um, maximalist and it mm. was quite um, out there and it was sort of over the top. And that was like the leftover of the eighties and power dressing and, and then what happened with the supermodels. And then there was this sort of grunge moment where everything was deconstructed. And then, you know, that sort of simplicity and minimalism in design became really popular. And that to me is like my, that's my ethos right there. So, so I think if you put all of those things into a blender and like pulse it, that's what Japanese beauty is. Love it. Shiseido have recently named Hunter Schaefer as their global makeup ambassador, which is so exciting. I would love to hear more about how that partnership came to be. What do you feel that Hunter is going to bring to the brand? And what is it about her that you think resonates with so, so many people? I think, you know, Hunter to me is so like the, the, the modern embodiment of the concept of beauty. Um, I think that she represents in, in so many different capacities, like this current zeitgeist of beauty and, and this like younger generation specifically um, that is, has moved beyond labels, boundaries, restrictions, limits, um, and they really express this part of themselves that is so authentic and so truly creative and artistic. And I think for us, um, you know, with Shiseido and like thinking about who made sense and who felt aligned with who we are, I felt more than anything that we needed to have somebody who was, was, was an artist in some capacity. And I think that Hunter, whether it is through her artwork or whether it's through modeling, whether it's through acting now, um, that has become part of her expression. And that's so, it's so authentic. And to me, that was what was really um, important for us. And, and also just, you know, we, we didn't want just to have a model that wasn't going to be, um, you know, able to align with that part of us that, that we, that's really core to who we are. Um, you know, we're, we're half science and we're half art. And where we really live is in that intersection of the two. And I just think that she's the perfect embodiment of that. And also just like wanting to work with somebody that has a point of view and wants to collaborate and wants to be part of the conversation, not just, you know, showing up for a shoot and, you know, having a lipstick put on. And, you know, it's like the collaboration with Hunter is really amazing. And, and we're really excited to see how we'll continue uh, this relationship with her. From my perspective, like not to make it about me, but I feel like I will read brands have, you know, appointed someone as the face of the brand and I'm like, okay. When the Hunter announcement was made, I was like, yeah, that adds up. Makes perfect yeah. sense. Well, and I think that was part of it too. Like it was, it was actually like, it felt very instinctual from the beginning. I knew about Hunter's work as a model um, before I, I saw her on Euphoria. The best and show that has been created in years. I mean, again, also just speaking of that, like zeitgeist and capturing that moment and like changing, I think everyone just sort of was like hit over the head, right? It was like, whoa, this is mind blowing. This is incredible. The cinematography is incredible. The performances are incredible. The styling, um, the makeup, obviously Donnie Davy is like oh. an incredible artist. Um, what she's done for that is incredible. But 
but yeah, I mean, I think that was it. That was what we felt too. It was like, Hunter just made sense and Hunter felt right. And it was, it's been so nice since we just announced her um, last week. It's been so nice to hear my friends in the industry and people that I've worked with to say like, wow, that is a perfect union. Wow. That makes sense. Um, that, that means that it's, it's, it, it, it seems right. It felt right before and it, and it still feels really right. And like I said, we're so excited to sort of continue this journey with her a lot more to, a lot more to come and a lot more to share in the coming months. It's very exciting. Given that Hunter is such a vocal advocate for LGBTQ rights and is openly transgender herself, I think it is worth talking about inclusivity in beauty, particularly this year. I, you know, you have to talk about it. Shiseido's foundations are available in 30 shades, which is amazing. Unfortunately, that is not the norm across the board yet. Do you think, this is a broad one, do you think the beauty community as a whole is finally becoming more inclusive and what can consumers do to help move the needle? I think it's 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 such an important conversation. I mean, it's such an important conversation that's 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 been happening and that's been building. I think in in all parts of our culture, it's 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 pervasive, and I think we we all are incredibly aware um, of the inequity um, that so many people experience. You know, um, being an other or being a minority in any capacity that can that can be so many different um, elements. I I do think that you know it's important to represent all facets of beauty and all facets of humanity and all facets of, um, you know, who we are collectively. And I think, especially when it comes to the beauty industry and the role that, that I play and that we all play to be in this industry, we should be as representative and inclusive as we can be. Um, you know, that comes into everything that we do in product development and in shades and making sure that, you know, a color that might seem like it is a typical, you know, I'll, I'll use like a pale pink, for instance, that might work on a lighter skin tone or a, like a specific, you know, we have an archetype of who wears that product. I make sure that it works on every skin tone so that anybody can wear it and it can work. Um, I think that beauty should be democratic. I think beauty should be for everybody. And I think especially when it comes to gender expression, you know, as somebody, you know, as a gay person and as somebody who grew up in the middle of nowhere, um, and I've, you know, I, I would never put my experience on the same, um, you know, in the same conversation as what other people feel, but I've, I've been, I've been in that place of, of feeling, um, other than, or feeling ostracized or feeling marginalized. And I think that that's something that, um, I would never want to perpetuate in anything that I've done. I think, especially when it comes to beauty and it comes to, um, making things available and making things inclusive it's um it's it's it, it it's not even a question to me um and as far as like what the consumer can do i mean i think that you know i think when products or brands you know continue to offer very limited things um or or not make things for everybody or make things for a very specific you know sub segment of the culture um if it doesn't speak to you move on and find what speaks to you. Because I think the good news is, is that there are a lot of brands out there that are taking part in these conversations and are also making products for everybody. Um, you have so many choices. So, you know, don't, don't support, uh, I would say don't support a product that doesn't seem in aligned with who you think too. I mean, I, I feel like that's another part of the conversation. I feel like that way as a consumer myself, 
Um, you know, brands that don't seem to align with my values and my, um, you know, who I am as a, as a, as a person and, and sort of fundamentally who I am, I, I am not interested in supporting. So I think that's what, that's our role as a consumer and that's our power as a consumer. Beauty should be democratic. God, there's a lot of power in that. You have been a part of the beauty industry for upwards of 25 years now. What are some of the biggest changes that you have seen, both in trends and in the way that people physically apply their makeup over the span of your career? I think, um, I mean, definitely like the, the, I think the like the use of makeup and the sort of like, um, I guess the commitment to using makeup has been something that I've really seen changed. And I, I've seen so many different different eras and different moments of that from like, you know, my, like the full face of the eighties that got stripped down to the nineties that then became very colorful in the two thousands and then became, you know, very, you know, Instagram focused as we moved into this like sort of social media. So, you know, I think the, the most interesting thing about it is like the, the sort of ideals of beauty you know, that are, that are created by the media, by myself and, you know, included in the beauty industry. Like, I think one thing that you have to know is that they're fleeting and that they would, they will change and they will evolve. Um, and I think that to me is what's sort of the most interesting and keeps me in the industry and has for so many years because it's constantly changing and evolving. Um, I think from a formula and from a product point of view, you know, there's always more refinement. There's always more innovation. There's always more, um, safety there's always new ingredients there's always something new that that continues to allow um from the product side to to be better and to and to continue to evolve as well and then again like what what i was speaking about i think specifically in regard with hunter i think that the concept of beauty continues to change and you know it's important to be part of that change it's important to be part of the conversation of of being more open to other standards of beauty. You know, I think to me, what what's something that's always been interesting in my career um, and my personal life, you know, traveling, um, which is probably the thing that I miss the most about, mm. about this time right now is just the experience of other culture and the experience of other people, the experience of other places. Um, it, it feeds me in such a way that like allows me to be creative and it allows me to be hopeful and it allows me to feel like I can dream again. And I think that's something that we need now more than ever. Like, I love this idea of hope in beauty. I love this idea of um, having something that feels more than just something that you put on and it, it, can, it can illuminate a part of you. It can um, shape part of your narrative or your expression. You can use it to be creative. You can use it as part of your story. And, and I think to me, that's what I've always been attracted to about makeup. And that's what I've always been attracted to about sort of that, that transformative power of makeup. You know, I can be something today that I'm not tomorrow. I can be something, you know, next week that I, that I, that I wasn't two years ago. So, you know, as, as being part of the language that we use to communicate who we are and who we want to be, um, I think makeup is, you know, powerful and it, and it should continue to evolve. And what about the future of beauty while we're on things continuing to evolve what do you think we can expect to see from the cosmetics industry over the next say five or so years 
I think one thing that you know we're we're constantly looking at, and I think we'll continue to see, uh, and 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 I I feel like we're getting closer and closer to this being uh, a, a, like a new moment is the integration of technology more into makeup and beauty products. Um, we're seeing that already, um, especially when it comes to skincare and ways that your device or devices can monitor your hydration levels, um, your, you know, the, the sort of like content of your skin structure. Um, so, so this idea of like using technology to integrate what your, what your body and your skin specifically needs, I think we're seeing that really already in like in, in food and beverage and wellness. And I think we'll continue to see that in makeup. And to me, that's really exciting. Um, I love the idea of, of not only integrating technology to make, you know, putting on makeup or using a product easier. I also think that it's, there's a, there's like maybe a visual part of that as well. Um, you know, we we're, we're communicating right now on a zoom meeting and I do secretly have a filter on my zoom that makes my skin look like this, but wouldn't it be great if I have a makeup product that works with that filter that is capturing my performance or my look. So I do think that even like ingredients that can be activated, um, by certain technologies or, or by different, um, you know, ways to read them, meaning does it blur more when you're on a Zoom camera? Does it um, look more natural when you're in real life? Does it increase its opacity when it's dark um, or when, it, when you're exposed to UV rays? I think that that is the next sort of moment in beauty. And to me, that's so exciting. It's like, it's like thinking about that moment in the fifth element, you know, when, when, when Mila Jovovich sort of takes the Chanel goggles and like clicks the button and it puts eye makeup on her. It's like, I, I might That's be rendering. the dream. It's the dream. I might be rendering myself obsolete. Like the, the machines will completely take over, but I'm sort of here for it. Amazing. Finally, James, what is next for Shiseido makeup? Well, we definitely, we just announced Hunter um, as our ambassador. So we, we have a lot more, um, it, it, a lot more to share with, with Hunter. Um, I think one thing that you'll see from us, I mean, specifically with makeup and, and, and I'll talk about that because that's what I can actually talk about. Um, I think, you know, our lens that we look through is to continue to find, you know, find products and gestures that feel new. Um, and that offer that performance and offer that expression. And, um, you know, we are definitely doing something um, at the beginning, middle of next year, that I think is a really unusual new sort of hybrid texture that I don't think anyone has ever seen before. Mm -hmm. um, and I hope will offer a lot of um, creativity and expression and play more than anything. I mean, I think that I love the sense of play when it comes to color and makeup. Um, and I think that this, um, some things that are coming soon um, really uh, celebrate that idea of, of playfulness and expression and creativity, um, maybe more than anything we've done so far. So I'm really looking forward to that. That was James Beaumont, Global Artistic Director for Shiseido Makeup, which you can find on Instagram at Shiseido. To read this interview, you can visit glowjournal.com. And for more beauty news, you can find me on Instagram at gemkwatts or at glow.journal. If you liked this episode, please do not forget to subscribe, rate, review and share so other beauty lovers can find us. I'm Gemma Watts. You've been listening to the Glow Journal podcast. 
and thank you for joining me. Thank you.